This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everyone. It is such a pleasure to have you join me once again in the conversation. And do I have a treat for you? Every single week, we just get better and better and better. I have the one and only Dr. Derek Hamilton right here with us. And we are going to talk economics and justice, but in a very exciting, exciting way. I got to do the doc some justice here. So glad that our paths crossed uh, some years ago, primarily in the political sphere. And I've been so excited ever since. And Dr. Hamilton, certainly his work is known throughout this country and dare I say the world. But in particular, he has had the opportunity. We both have been, he's been on the on policy panels or tables for Senator Bernie Sanders when he was running for president. And for the current president, President Joe Biden, he joined other academics and activists and other justice leaders in helping to shape and craft some of the policy positions that the administration should consider while they are leading this country. Dr. Hamilton is the is a university professor. He is the Henry Cohen Professor of Economics. Doc, I had to get that right because all of that part of your title I don't have memorized. But more importantly, he is the founding director, one of the founders of the Institute of Race, Power, and Political Economy. Doc, it's so good to have you join us on the conversation. Thank you, Senator Turner. It is a pleasure to always be on a stage with you. You know I'm a big admirer of yours and hopefully a partner in this endeavor and our quest to try to bring about more economic, political, and social justice. Indeed, we are. And the feeling is certainly mutual. We are blessed in the academy and also in the political sphere to have someone of your commitment and your intellect navigate and use your skills and ability to abilities to make this world a better place. And speaking of that, Doc, tell us a little bit about yourself. What is it about you that motivates you to use your gifts and your degrees to make this world a better place? Yeah, and, and you know, when we look inward, that's never an easy question. I mean, certainly I've been shaped by experiences of, of fortune. I've, I've had um, a childhood that exposed me to a Quaker education. And, and I think the Quakers got it right. And when they think about curricular and, and, uh, and justice, uh, they're not so separable. That there's an ethic that, that is implicit in the things they do. So, that, so that's good fortune. And I've also um, seen, I've also seen firsthand what privilege can do um, as a result of being exposed to some of those environments of basically elite education, but yet growing up in Bedford-Stuyvesant. And, I, and um, like many of us, we come from legacies of people that might not have had as good a fortune as we've had. And there's a moral obligation uh, to serve the sacrifices that they have made. Uh, and you know, I, I think that that compels me. I think I'm compelled by the fact that 
Um, others have made profound sacrifices for myself uh, to be in positions to be successful. And then, you know, even irrespective of that, uh, I don't know how much is is taught and how much is part of my core. But I, I I believe I'm a humanist. I desire for people to have the resources they uh, need in order to to thrive and and uh, and and reach their full potential. Amen to that, Doc. I consider myself a humanist too, hell raising humanitarian to be exact. So we rolling together <laughs> on that one. And to hear you say bed sty, right? Do you guys feel is that the shorthand? Is that proper? <laughs> That, that's right, and and I call myself economic development, not gentrification, because I was born and raised in Bed Stuy. Bed Stuy actually had some cred. <laughs> no, and that I mean that's a different it's a different vantage point to hear you talk about Bed Stuy made me think of uh, somebody that had made a profound difference in the political sphere in this country, and that is the one and only Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm. Absolutely. <laughs> Look, you you are a, a student of history or a professor of history, <laughs> um, but but again, that's important. That legacy, that foundation, um, by which uh, I'd say our generation is able to uh, make gains. If we don't lead, if we don't make gains, then we don't do service to that legacy. That's exactly right, and uh, she has meant so much. She continues to mean a lot, and I. I really do believe profoundly that she was ahead of her time. Yeah, no, she no was doubt. right on time, but she was ahead of her time. Yeah. <laughs> so, Doc, so stratification economist, that is what you do, that is what you studied. I know people can get from the word stratification. I kind of think um, intersection uh, when I think about stratification uh, economics. But tell us, tell the layman, tell us what does it mean to be a stratification economist? And you know, again, we, we led with legacy. I should point out that a lot of the work we're doing builds upon people like Arthur Lewis, um, Jim Stewart, who we had the good fortune of being yes. in a panel, to, being in a conference together with. Uh, he wrote a dissertation about the political economy of race. He's trained as an economist. Uh, he was a professor of African American studies as well. And Jim, for example, understood that contemporary problems were not separable from history. That if we're, if we're gonna look at inequality, one needs a historical lens as well as analytical perspective. Um, but in a nutshell, let me define stratification economics as a, a field of economics that expands the orthodox view of the ways in which um, inequality is generated um, with a focal point around resources as opposed to the conventional view of human capital, right? If with, with the conventional view of, of such primacy in human capital and individual optimization, so individuals are, uh, if people have had Econ 101, maximizing their happiness subject to constraint. Well, what's problematic about that is it has a myopic lens on power. It has a myopic lens on the role that race plays, identity formation, and collective action. The fact that um, racism is not simply the result of individual bigoted agents who are ignorant, but rather racism is strategic. So uh, stratification economics, and, and I know I'm a little bit all over the place, 
Um, but for clarity, stratification economics does not treat inequality and race as something that that uh, is to be thought of after we do some primary analysis. So you know, you look at some model and then look at its impact on race. Rather, stratification economics looks at race, inequality, gender, and other identity formations as a focal point, trying to better understand the incentives and disincentives associated with investing in one's race. The fact that, again, race isn't something that's simply taste and preferences. I hate you, I don't like you, or I'm ignorant about you. But rather, there is strategic use of investment and identity for hierarchical purposes. Hence, we get the terms, we get terms like property rights and whiteness. And I'm gonna say it's a little ironic that a discipline like economics that's often accused of being hyper-rational, <laughs> to being hyper-oriented around property rights, has a limited notion of a property rights and something like one's identity. Uh, so, you know, it, and, and let me also say that it's not enough for us to talk about causes and consequences. Uh, another aspect of stratification economics is remedies. So, you know, what can we do to disincentivize the immoral investments in one's race or identity that lead to material consequences? So, I'm not interested in ending race. I'm not interested in ending gender. Uh, there is aesthetic appeal to investment in or or, or um, appreciation of one's legacy. There's this, there is aesthetic appeal to a culture that might have been built up from uh, one's ancestry. So there's nothing wrong with that. That should be celebrated. But what is problematic is when we have social structures that offer material or psychological benefits associated with one's identity. That's an immoral society, and that's something that needs to be dismantled. And me and my colleagues are heavily invested in coming up with alternative structures that actually um, get rid of the immoral benefits and costs associated with one's identity. And that is indeed a beautiful thing, Doc. I know that as you have navigated, you've been called all over all over this country, certainly uh, for your expertise. And one of the things that you worked on uh, was with uh, Senator Booker. And uh, it was the baby bomb. Yeah, Talk to and us we, a little bit. Yeah, I say we should give Representative Ayanna Presley a, a shout out as well because she has a House version. Senator Booker, no doubt, took the leadership at the Senate at the Senate level. Um, but 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 we go. We uh, I'm smart enough to appreciate Black women on your show, especially. Well, we got well. We definitely have to do that. Definitely, and and, and her name is not attached to that. So I'm glad, Doc, that you brought that up. So yes, shout out to my sister, <laughs> Representative Ayanna Presley, who carried the bill in the House of Representatives on the federal level, and then Senator Cory Booker carried it in the U.S. Senate. And that happens a lot, where there are companion bills in both chambers uh, on the congressional level. It also happens on the state level as well, which I have a certain expertise. But yes, definitely shout out to both of them. So talk to us a little bit, Doc, about baby bonds. And I'm giving this example because it is a really good example of how you can take the academy, you can take academia, you can take the study, you know, the work that some academics are doing and may and turn it into something that is tangible through pushing 
people who have the power of public policy, whether it is elected officials in the in, in the legislative branch or whether it is executives. But in this case, using the baby bonds as an example to cut or to make a dent into the wealth gap. Primarily, that is what the baby bonds are designed to do. So talk to us about those stuff. And again, thank you, Senator Turner, for that setup. And going back to your initial question of what motivates me and the framing of how the academy can have a public influence is just that. Like I have, I'm not interested in knowledge creation simply for the sake of knowledge creation. I'm interested in, I'm grounded in values with a goal. So I start with a perspective of where I, what I want to achieve, and that is, you know, to empower people. And baby bonds, you are right, is a really good example in my view of, of something where scholarship is made actionable. What we know about the racial wealth gap is, and what we know about wealth generation in general, you know how people generate wealth? It is wealth that begets more wealth. Without capital, inequality is locked in. So the solution to um, providing pathways of economic security by way of wealth uh, seems to naturally fall out from what we know from a scholarly perspective that people need to have access to capital. People need to have access to capital at a key point in their life so that they can benefit from the passive appreciation, the ways that other people that are born into wealth benefit. Like for example, the difference between a homeowner and a renter is often a down payment. Not ingenuity, not not thrift, um, but often one individual has access to a, a resource that can put them in a home, whereas the other doesn't. So why don't we provide everybody as a birthright some modicum of capital by which they can uh, generate economic security over their life. And, and um, you know, I also like to point out that this policy baby bonds, which is if, if I were to describe it in a nutshell, it is at birth, uh, the government provides a capital foundation based on the family economic circumstance in which one is born. So as a birthright, similar to social security, as, a, as a basically a citizen right, as you age into your twilight, the government reserves an asset for you that you can use as a pension in, in your elder years. Well, we, have, we don't have good public policy for people that are just starting out their lives. So this says that you may be born into a poor family, you may be born black, you may be born a woman. And there's a legacy of discrimination, there's a legacy of accumulated resources associated with that identity. Well, baby bonds ensures that you will have access to some capital um, regardless of race, regardless of, of gender, um, regardless of, of the ways patriarchy might play out within household and decisions of, of whether you leave money to a son or daughter. Uh, it says that when you become a young adult, you will have some nest egg that you can invest in a business, uh, uh, invest in a debt-free college education, or invest in a home so that you can have a down payment that puts you into a mortgage that automatically provides savings and asset appreciation, the ways in which most Americans are able to generate wealth who actually have wealth. That, that's the point, and that's the vision behind it. And a beautiful vision it is, and uh, notwithstanding the push by both uh, Congress Congresswoman 
uh, Presley and also Senator Booker, that has not moved, but we will continue to push for it. But the example is so profound and beautiful and it, we have to do more. We have to unite more with the academy and with public policymakers to uh, make sure that we, we are pushing ideas that get us to a more equitable society. And speaking of that, you are the director of the Institute on Race, Power, and Political Economy. I love that word, power. The name, and this is at the new school, the name has changed. I believe stratification was in the name, and then there was a revisioning. And so the word power is there. And it, it is something powerful, excuse the pun, about the word power being attached to race and, and to power and to political economy. What was, why? Why the word power to re- replace stratification? I'm going to try my attempt at humor and say power is such a powerful word. I probably shouldn't quit my day job, but 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 <laughs> all joking aside, essentially, isn't that what this is all about? Essentially, isn't this about uh, trying to uh, ensure that people can be determining in their lives, that people have agency, that people can be uh, uh, utilize their ingenuity in a way to generate some benefit for themselves? utilize their hard work in a way to generate some benefit for themselves. Uh, Power is both the input and the output. Power is what is necessary to to be self-determining. And being self-determining is in of itself the the outcome. So you know what's interesting? If you do a landscape, and this is from a marketing standpoint, when you're thinking about what to name an institute, you, you do a Google search and, and you search what's out there in the landscape. Surprisingly, very little, very few institutes and centers have the word power in their name. I think we should embrace power. We, we should embrace the terminology um, because that's what this is about. And it's not, you know, it, it ain't just power that we say, right? It is uh, good uses of power, it is redirecting power in a moral way. You know, another another word that's often used, I know in your vocabulary and also in mine, because I'm very familiar with your work, is morality. Uh, it yeah. is humanity and morality. So we're talking about moral uses of power and, and enabling people to be self-determining. That should be the goal of any well-functioning society. Amen to that, Doc. And just listening to you reminded me of a quote. Uh, by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., which I'm I'm trying to pull up because I don't have it memorized. But he talks about power and morality, but power and love, you know, in the place of the word morality. And basically that's what we're using, love. And he just said both of those things go together, that one without the other does not work. You have to have them both. So when I think about, you know, the progressive movement in particular, I think that movement is about love. It doesn't make the movement perfect, but the intent of the movement is love. I think it is love for humanity when you say that we must have Medicare for all in this country. It's love of humanity to say that we must cancel student debt. It's love of humanity to say that we must change a legal system that is working exactly as it is designed to work, which is to to bombard black bodies, hearts, and minds in ways that other people don't have to deal with. And by extension, there is both a race and a, and a class component. There's a caste and class component to the legal system that impacts 
poor people across the board, but especially if you are black and brown, justice is not blind. It sees you very clearly and it treats you differently. Love says we need paid family leave in the United States of America. Love says that people, whether they're working among the working poor or the barely middle class, have a right to live a good life. That really is love. That is that morality that you're talking about. And to have someone of your stature and, and, and what you do for the academy come at it as an economist from that vantage point is powerful, double check, exclamation point, and beautiful at the same time. And I just really applaud you Doc and all of your colleagues at the Institute for understanding that this, this game is about power. Sometimes people on the progressive left, especially a little skittish about talking about power. Oh No, baby, this is about power. It's about who has it and how they use it, how they wield that power. Do they wield it for a greater good or do they wield it for selfish reasons? For example, not wanting the ultra wealthy in this country to pay their fair share of taxes is using power in a way that disadvantages large swaths of people from all walks of life, allowing them to write the tax code in a way that lets them run away with paying those taxes. Meanwhile, you're putting that burden or disproportionate amount of that burden on people who have less is using power the other way. So I'm telling you, Doc, this this is this is it. You got me going now. I mean, I mean, I think that duality of power and love is brilliant. And uh, shout out to Reverend Dr. Martin Luther Reverend King. Thompson. And shout yeah. out to you for for uh, bringing it up in, 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 the, in the absolute context of, of the ways in which these two words are reinforcing. And if, and if I can vibe a little bit off, off of that, um, you know, perhaps the clergy community uh, uh, defers too much to economists and perhaps economists need to embrace morality a little more. Uh, and let me say this, uh, you know, Reverend William Barber has said uh, yeah. that, uh, you know, I, I'm going to mess up his words, but he's talked about morality and economics. Let, let me also say that it is problematic that economics is purported as a strictly positivist endeavor devoid of values, as if it's simply scientific. There is no endeavor that's strictly scientific devoid of values. Everything begins with some, some set of values. For those that have had economics in graduate school, they will have heard about the welfare theorems of economics. The first one, and I'll just name one because I know we're running short on time. One is the concept that you can't make somebody better off without making somebody worse off. Tell me that's not a grounding in values. Whether you aspire to those values or not, it's still a a values proposition grounded in values by which a lot of the attributes of the discipline, modern day discipline derives. But but let me say that um, one can also talk about economics with, a, with other values and, and express them differently. Values of inclusion, values of, of civic engagement, values of, of equity. The, 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 there are, you know, basically the point I'm trying to make is that one needs to lean in and begin with the values, begin with your North Star. One always should apply rigor. One can question ideology, but this ain't about Republican or Democrat. It's about values. And, and I dare say that in our history, we've talked a lot about economic rights. However, if we look, if we come up to a more modern day period, when we talk about human rights, we talk about political civil rights, 
And, and whether we realize them a lot, it at least is part of the public psyche. We also need to realize people need economic rights. People need some resources in order to engage in transaction. Otherwise, they're vulnerable to exploitation or they're simply at the whim of charity. That's right, Doc. And even President FDR understood that when he came out with the Economic Bill of Rights. And part of that was a job, good job. You know, he might have called it decent, but we're gonna put good on it. But it was jobs, it was education, it was taking care of people who could not take care of themselves. Hello, somebody. It was about decent housing. And we could take that foundation. It was not complete, but it was certainly a strong foundation and put a 21st century spin on that. That's that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. We don't have to recreate all of this, but FDR, he was a great president, even though you know the New Deal. You know, we can come back and have another conversation about the flaws of the New Deal, but the foundational premise of it was correct. It just was not expanded in a way that recognized racial justice. But just because that was in the past, it doesn't have to be the future that we can take some of these things and build on them and make them better and better and better. Oh my God, God. So I want to end with this. I have one more question for you, but you know what? That just means that we got to have you back. So let's just go ahead and read Dr. King's quote in our final moments together. And I want to have you react to it, but you got this started. And the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said that power without love is reckless and abusive and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, keyword demand. And justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. That what you say. That, that is the mic drop. There's nothing more I can add to that brilliance. Only thing I will say is that the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights needs to be called anti-racist, anti-sexist, inclusive economic rights. That's the fulfillment of the more righteous FDR dream. Come on, come on. You heard, <laughs> you heard it from Dr. Derek Hamilton, the one and only Doc, thank you so much for your bright light and everything that you do for our country and this world. Thank God for you. Thank God for your parents. Thank God for you. And thank God for all of you for joining us on the conversation. Please keep the faith and keep the fight.